Hey guys, if you're an avid listener of Young and Profiting Podcast, I'd like to personally invite you to Yap Society on Slack. It's a community where listeners network and give us feedback on the show, vote on episode titles, chat live with guests, and share your projects with the group. We'd love to have you. Go to bit.ly slash Yap Society. That's bit.ly slash Yap Society. You can find the link in our show notes. This episode of Yap is sponsored by Fiverr, a marketplace that over 5 million entrepreneurs use to grow their business. I've been using Fiverr for years. In fact, I got the Yap logo made on there, and if you've seen my cool audiograms with animated cartoons, I get those images from Fiverr too. They have affordable services like graphic design, web design, digital marketing, whiteboard explainer videos, programming, video editing, audio editing, and much more. They have over 100,000 talented freelancers to choose from and it's super affordable. Prices just start at $5. If you're interested to give Fiverr a shot, hit the link in our show notes. And if you'd rather learn how to do these types of services on your own, check out Fiverr Learn, a new platform that provides on-demand professional courses from leading experts. They start at just $20, but what you could learn is priceless. Check out the links in our show notes to learn more. You're listening to Yap young and profiting podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and today we're speaking with Ron Carucci, co-founder and managing partner of consulting firm Nevelin. Ron has an impressive 30 years of experience helping executives tackle challenges related to strategy, organization, and leadership. He's worked with startups to Fortune 10 companies in over 30 countries. He's also the author of Rising to Power, and his work has been featured in HBR, Business Week, and Fortune, among other publications. In this episode, you'll find out why some leaders fail while others succeed, how to improve our self-perception to better manage our weaknesses, and why we should avoid binary decision-making at all costs. Hey, Ron, thanks for joining Young and Profiting Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, Hala, great to meet you. Thanks for having me. So, Ron, I see that you are currently the co-founder and managing partner at Nevalent, helping CEOs and executives pursue transformational change for their organizations and industries. How did you end up becoming interested in organizational change? And how did you make your way to become an expert in this field? Could you just share a bit about your career path with us? Sure. I've always been fascinated, even as a little kid, by you know, the organizing of human endeavor. Mm-hmm. You know, if there was a fundraiser at school, if there was a neighborhood stickball game, if there was a block party, I wanted to be the one organizing it. I loved the idea that people could come together and contribute things to a larger effort and produce something they couldn't produce on their own. That's always been fascinating to me. I began my career in the arts. Mm. So in a field far away from the one I'm in right now. And I was in Europe in the 80s working with a company that we had a contract with the military and State Department to do work with a variety of departments in both State Department and all branches of the military. And we were at Dachau. And back then, they didn't have the term diversity and inclusion. But had they had the term, that's what this workshop would have been on. It was on how to deal with differences. Mm. And we were using a variety of arts and medium to bring about a conversation between military, civilians, Germans, Americans. And of course, the symbolism of being at Dachau, of all places, the chapel, was not lost on anybody. And in the middle of that conversation, a young soldier, not much older than me, stood up and talked about how tired he was of being trained to hate. And my first thought was, wow, I can't believe something I did up here on the platform made him think that. But then I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand, well, what was he going to do about that? So even after we processed as a group for a few minutes, his 
views and other people weighed in about whether they agreed or not. We went out for beers afterwards because you're in Munich and you go out for beers. Mm -hmm. And I think that was at the beginning of a turning point for Mihala. I don't know that I could have named it at the time, but telling great stories from a, the stage was an interesting thing to do, but engaging other people in their stories, that was really fascinating for me. And I learned early on that I bore easily and that was never going to be boring for me. Every day was a new story. And so I think that's where I began to move into organizational behavior and the field of industrial psychology mm -hmm. and began to make my shift toward doing works that helped bring about change. Very cool. And so you said you started out as an art major. Did you learn everything about organizational change totally on the job or did you have any formal, you know, training and education in regards to that? I went back to school and got my master's in organizational behavior and got training and took some entry level jobs. I was able to build on my experience in the arts and the performing arts. So I was able to make the shift in my platform work more naturally because I'd done training work and I'd done other entry-level OD work mm -hmm. before continuing on my career to purely into the OD space. The transition looks far more elegant in retrospect than it actually felt like when I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you get the idea to start your own consulting firm? So I think that idea sort of found me. I realized early on, I spent much of the early parts of my OD career inside big companies. And what I learned was politically, it's very difficult to tell the truth. And part of being a great OD practitioner means you have to be honest about what's happening. So I realized that what got me into some political trouble inside companies actually got me paid pretty well outside the company because as a consultant, you're expected to be a, a broker of the truth. So I realized, you know, if I was going to live out my passion for organizations, it was going to have to be by not being part of one. Mm. And so I joined a large consulting firm in New York City and had a wonderful run there for eight years. But that firm got sold to a much bigger firm. And then when that happened, you know, now you're part of a massive organization and it's about revenues and it wasn't about the craft anymore. And so mm -hmm. a few friends and I said, you know, we love this work too much to just do it to make money for the firm. We can go do this on our own. So really what launched our firm was our desire to work together as colleagues and friends and to do great work for our clients. Mm -hmm. The goal wasn't actually to go start a firm. So when we started our practice together, what it meant was, well, if we wanted to do large projects, we we're going to need help. And so we had to hire people. So the idea of growing a firm was sort of we backed into it by our goals for wanting other things in our life. Yeah. And so a lot of my listeners are at this stage where they're an employee and they're considering becoming an entrepreneur. What were your major challenges when you decided to start your own business? And was there anything unexpected that you came across? <laughs> it was all unexpected. I don't know that I ever set out to be an entrepreneur. And it's funny when I think about it, the journey was certainly an entrepreneurial one. But whenever I hear folks thinking about, you know, their frustrations in being a big company or being in a cubicle farm, or I don't want to work for the man anymore. And they think the answer to that is go start my own business. Mm -hmm. I'm always really thoughtful about that's not for everybody. And you have to really understand the psychological and emotional challenges of what it means to go start your own business and go the distance. Having a great idea doesn't make you an entrepreneur. Having a great personality doesn't make you an entrepreneur. Having the ability to sell things doesn't make you an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people all the time, try a side gig, try a side hustle, experiment. Because just the idea of marketing, we started our firm 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. The idea of leadership and organizational work was a side dish. There were not that many specialized firms working in it. It was a unique niche. We were one of the best at it. 15 years later, everybody and their mother is a coach. <laughs> everybody, their uncle and their cousin is doing leadership and organizational work. They use the same language. They have the same website pictures. They have the same 
blog posts. There's literally, literally tens of thousands of practitioners now more than there was then. Which means if we want to get picked, if we want to be in the decision path of a good client, of somebody we really want to work with, we have to find some way to set ourselves apart from all that mm -hmm. noise. And we never saw that coming. We never anticipated that. 10 years into our 15-year story now, that became a major requirement. It was an entirely new set of muscles. None of us had ever built before. None of us wanted to. So, you know, when you're thinking about going out and starting your own business, start with the acceptance of the fact that you may think that your idea is the most unique, brilliant thing in the world. And when entrepreneurs fall in love with their own ideas, that's the kiss of death. You have to know that there are already gazillions of other choices for whatever it is you think you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And if you're not so clear strategically on what you can do differently, yeah. what you can do better, and be honest about that, and what it's going to take to carve yourself a space in an already cluttered space, well, your first year will be exciting because you'll set up your website and you'll print your business cards and you'll do networking meetings and you'll call yourself whatever you are, but you won't be getting paid for it. <laughs> if you want people to pay you money for this thing you think you want to do, you need to really do your homework really recognize that you're in for a multi-year journey to get to the place where you're really actually getting paid to do it and loving it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, especially in your peer set, Hala, are just not clear on what that's going to be. They say, oh, I can do it. But I don't know that they're really prepared for what that journey is going to require. Yeah, I think you bring out a good point that your marketing and positioning like really has to be super clear and on point and professional and you need to stand out and your value proposition needs to resonate with the people that you're trying to target. So I think you bring out a lot of great points there. Something very fascinating I found about you is that you've worked in over 30 countries. So that's very diverse. That means you're probably very familiar with culturally how different countries work when it comes to business. So is there any insight you want to share to specific countries and how they operate when it comes to business? Well, I think just going in and accepting that there are different cultural nuances and expectations and laws if you have a desire to do business overseas. Mm -hmm. If you're going to have a website, just the fact that Europeans require you to say certain things about your website that Americans don't yet, but we will. Mm -hmm. You have to know that there are going to be people scrutinizing your website differently in China than they are in other parts of Asia versus the Middle East versus Europe. So I think recognizing that there are implications, assuming that your consumer or your target customer is the same in those countries, that you're solving the same problem is naive. So recognizing that what you think you're selling and what they're actually buying may be very different. How people treat hierarchy or honesty or the idea of how people consume content or whether or not it's even okay to consume certain content in certain cultural contexts, how people treat women, how people treat younger people or older people. Mm. There's so many different cultural nuances that change how people will metabolize you that if you don't know what those are, you're gonna make a huge mistake. Early on, I was in Israel and I was told that I would have to choose between working with Palestinian clients or Israeli clients, that I would never be able to work with both. Mm. And I was defiant. And this is back in the 80s. There's still conflict, but it's not like it is today. Yeah. And I was in a Palestinian school in the West Bank doing a program. We were being paid for it. The school was very excited to have us there. And I just used the word Israel. Mm -hmm. And it was early on as I was introducing ourselves for an hour and a half workshop. The minute I said the word Israel, you could tell the whole room shut down. And for the next hour and a half, it was torture trying to get people to participate in this workshop. I had no idea what I had done. Oh. I had no idea what I had done. But the fact that I used a word that they not only did not relate to, did not consider their country to be, but I had offended them. Yeah. And I hadn't even known I'd done it. 
So if you want to do business outside the borders of your own country, do your homework. Yeah, that's very touching. I'm actually Palestinian. So it's so funny that you're bringing this up. But yeah, I just think that certain topics are just so sensitive. And like you said, you need to do your homework and, and really be well versed before you go ahead and try to conduct business somewhere else. Uh, Where do you think people should start? Is it just researching online? Like, is there anything specific that you recommend? Study the country. I mean, what I did in your home country, Hala, was a stupid mistake. And what was so sad to me was, this was a group of people at a school who really needed what we had to offer and who really wanted us there and we could have been very helpful to. Had I just been more educated and more informed, and frankly, I was an arrogant American. Mm -hmm. I just assumed, no, I could work with both. And it was just one word, right? Yeah. That was before the internet was even a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Today, there's plenty of information available to you about the country, the laws, the culture, the people you're trying to serve, what they're trying to solve for. But I think that the problem is that Americans are arrogant. We universalize ourselves. We think we are, we're the standard. So we assume that problems are challenges or opportunities we have and want, everybody wants. Yep. And that's just dumb. And so, you know, don't be arrogant about where you're starting from. Assume you don't know anything because you probably don't. And start from a place of all I know is far from all there is to know. Mm -hmm. and assume you need six months of education, go visit the country, spend time there as a tourist, spend time talking to people in coffee shops off the beaten path. Just go be in the environment and meet the people you believe you can serve before you ever try to. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. So you're also the author of eight books. That's pretty amazing. What motivated you to become a writer? This is going to sound like my entrepreneur story. I don't know that I started out to be a writer. I'm certainly not an author. You know, some people ask me, are you an author? I'm like, no, I'm, I am a writer. Writing for me was a way to solve problems, right? So when my clients would ask me, or I'd start to see patterns with people I was helping of intractable, complex problems that I didn't have an answer to, that they were asking, or they were asking more intensely, or they had gotten themselves sideways because of, and I didn't quite know how to solve it, writing and researching became my way to go learn more, mm. became my way of, how do I figure this out? How do I go hear what other people have done? By nature, I'm an introvert, so I don't talk to people. So writing is a way to sort of honor my introversion and just go inside and think and talk. You know, I can do interviews and get data, but it's how I learn. It's through writing. And then when I've learned, I can then go talk about those solutions. Now, writing is a way of marketing, right? Today, any pathway to a client hiring me goes to the internet. Used to be that they talked to you first, and then if they liked you, they vet your ideas. Mm -hmm. It's completely reversed now. Now they vet your ideas first, and if they relate to your ideas or like them, then they'll talk to you. So if people can't find my ideas, if they can't find me and what I think and how I feel and how my experiences with other types of people like them, they're never going to call me. Mm. And so now writing is a way to make sure that people understand who I am and how I think and how I think about the problems they're facing. And if they can locate their story in my story, I raise the odds they'll call. That's awesome. Very interesting. So for this interview, I definitely want to spend a good chunk of time on what I think is your most popular book, Rising to Power. You co-authored that with Eric Hansen, who's also a managing partner at Nevalent. And I know that my listeners love to learn about power and influence based on my downloads. It's their favorite topic. So can't wait to get into this. So mm -hmm. let's just kick this off. Yeah. Your book is 
backed up by a 10-year study that you and Eric performed on executive promotions to assess why some leaders fail and others succeed. In the study, you found that more than 50% of leaders fail within their first 18 months of a new position. So what are the reasons for that? To talk to your listeners, I think this isn't just about career pathing at the top. This is about career pathing where you're at today. So if you aspire to take on a position in life or in your organization that has broader influence, broader reach, broader visibility, these findings apply. Mm. If you desire to go start your own business, they definitely apply. But mostly because people start out with assumptions about that role that are flawed, right? So even in the selection process, we set people up to fail. So if you're in a job interview and people ask you or say things to you that sound like, wow, look at these great apps you've built at that last assignment. That's what we need here. Or, oh my gosh, you've turned around two sales forces. We need that here. Mm. If you hear anything that sounds like people asking you to repeat your past successes, you are being set up to fail. Because the mythical implication is you have a mandate and a formula. And the mandate is to take your formula and apply it here. Mm. So we've all seen the movie. I'm sure you've seen it too, Hala. What happens? The person walks in thinking they have this mandate to start doing what they've done. And they start repeating what they've always done. And they start pushing harder to apply their recipe on you. And what happens? It doesn't work. Hmm. So they, they push harder. They slap harder. People get more resistant. Then they go to their hiring manager and say, you didn't tell me it was this bad. Or, oh my God, your people are dumber than I thought. And so now your diagnosis becomes an indictment. And you have completely skipped over the most important parts of what it means to begin in a new role or assignment, which is don't hit the ground running. Hmm. Hit the ground learning. Yeah. And you've skipped the whole point of context, of learning the context and accepting the fact that it has as much to change in you as you believe you've been told to change in it. And if you skip that part, you know, then what happens is within a year, we've all heard the classic words, it wasn't a good fit. Mm. And out you go. Yeah, that's so interesting. And if I remember correctly, 67% of executives struggle to let go of work from their previous roles. So how does that play into failing? The classic micromanager, right? So one of the things that happens when you elevate to a higher altitude in an organization is your timelines change, right? The things you're responsible for are now measured in months and years instead of weeks and months. The ambiguity and uncertainty that comes with decisions you make or outcomes you're controlling is uncomfortable. The role you came from was in the middle of the organization or at the bottom of the organization is much more about today's results, tomorrow's results. And you became really good at that. It's what you got reinforced for. It's what you got applauded for. It's what set yourself apart. It's probably what got you the promotion in the first place. Mm -hmm. So now you're in this uncomfortable spot of feeling uncertain, of feeling like an imposter. And and I mean, one of the classic things we hear newly promoted leaders say is, I feel like a fraud. I'm going to get found out. Mm -hmm. And so you naturally reach back for the things you're already good at. You reach back for the things you've accomplished before. And you take with you the things you're good at under the justification of, well, they're not really ready to take it over yet. So I'm just going to keep doing it till I think they're ready. Well, the reality is they're never going to be as good as you at at it because you did it for much longer. You have to let go of what you used to be good at in order to get good at the things you're now responsible for. And if you never let go, labeled a micromanager and a control freak and all these other labels that get put on people who are still doing the job they left. Yeah. And you're never going to learn the job you got. So in your book, you call this having an anthropologist mindset. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so one of the things I love about anthropology is you enter a space as a complete learner, right? Everything is data. 
And the problem is when you come in from outside the organization, you really are alien, right? It is a foreign line. But when you come up in the organization, the problem is you already know a lot about the organization. You already have biases about the culture. You have biases about the people you're working with. If you got promoted in your own department, now it's more complicated by the fact that your bosses are now your peers. Mm. Your peers are now your direct reports. And so everything you know about them could be flawed. And so letting go of what you think you know in order to learn becomes even harder. Mm. But you've got to start out with a notion of what does this all mean? How did it get to be this way? And even though you may think you have deep insights about what's happening, and some of those insights may be correct, you should start with the assumption of this is all brand new. And if I'd never seen it before, what questions would I ask? What would I want to know more of? How would I go about learning? How can I get reacquainted with people who I think I know, but now I now have a different relationship with? Mm. And really study the environment as if it were a brand new world to you. Because you won't know how your biases are getting in the way unless you first discover what they are. Yeah. Sounds very, you know, practical and relatable, honestly, because I'm sure many of us are getting promoted and need to understand how to navigate the landscape once we do. Something else that really fascinated me in your book was this concept of summit shock or altitude sickness. And you relate this type of analogy illustrates how executives experience debilitating and disorienting symptoms, similar to when we climb high altitudes without giving our bodies proper time to adjust to lower levels of oxygen. So can you help us understand this concept of summit shock more and explain how idealization and cognitive dissonance play into all of it? Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. 
You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, I'm about to be jet-setting all over the world. I'm going to London, Cancun, New Orleans, and New York to speak. I'm going to be up there with the bright lights, and I want to be spiffy. I want to look fresh. And so I'm going on a big shopping spree. I got to get clothes. I got to get hair stuff, skincare stuff, makeup. But I'm not going to feel guilty about this shopping spree because Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Rakuten is the shopping platform for savvy savers. From May 6th to May 13th, they're having their biggest cashback event of the year. I'm talking about 15% cashback at hundreds of stores with additional cashback bonuses. And they've got so many stores participating in their big give week. So when it comes to clothes, I'm looking at Splendid and Good American. And when it comes to beauty, they've got so many good stores participating. They've got Ulta, Fenty, Bobby Brown, Blue Mercury, and all the products that we love. Now we can get cash back. It's like getting a discount on the stuff you're going to buy anyway. It's absolutely amazing. They even have travel brands. So that's going to be super convenient for me with all my upcoming trips. Expedia, Hotels.com. You can get deals on everything from electronics to home goods to travel and beauty. Young and profiters, you're going to want to grab this limited time deal with both hands. You get high cashback rates for only eight days. So hurry. Membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Yeah, sure. If you've ever hiked up a mountain and you know suddenly you're getting nauseous, you're dizzy, you're struggling to breathe because the air has changed and your lungs are having to adapt. And so, you know, great mountain climbers will climb up. They'll acclimatize, they'll climb back down, spend more time there, climb up a little higher, and they elegantly try and adjust to help their bodies and their minds adapt. The same is true in an organization. You know, when you get to the top of an organization, politics are different. As I said before, what they're measuring is different. Relationships are different. How you're expected to talk is different. Suddenly, now people are concocting you, right? So now you're more visible. So your life now plays out on the jumbotron right? People are making up versions of you. People are attributing words to you you never said. Mm. You have to behave as if you have a bullhorn strapped to your mouth 24-7. And most leaders show up and they want to be authentic. They want to just be themselves. They think, I just want to be me. And I have to coach my clients to realize, well, yeah, but there's more than one of you now. There's a lot of you. And if you're leading people who are further away from you, or they're virtually in a different country, you're concocted, you're a version of yourself. And if you don't learn to control the narrative of how people metabolize you, they're gonna make things up you don't want them to understand. So yes, you have to be authentic and you have to be you, but you have to recognize that who you are to the people you're leading and guiding or responsible to, when they're not directly in your presses 24 seven is different than it used to be. Yeah. 
And many leaders just struggle to accept that. Yeah, I love this topic. I love the topic of distortions and altered perceptions of people. So let's talk about this more. Once we take an elevated position in our companies, you mention a lot of distortions in your book, like larger than life, the megaphone effect, sifted data and aliens next door. Could you walk through some of these and explain it to our listeners? I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. So the larger than life is the jumbotron issue, right? It's the you give a speech on a video and now instead of talking to 30 people, you're talking to 300 people. Or instead of talking to 100 people, you're talking to 1,000 people. The amount of biases and perceptions of issues of power, issues of leadership, issues of culture that you are now getting filtered through is endless. And while you cannot control all those narratives, you cannot assume that what's in your head is being matched by their interpretation network. So your requirement to lead out loud more to say things like, what I want you to hear is this. I don't want you to misunderstand this. What I hope you'll hear is the reason I'm asking for your trust is this. If you took the job over from a boss who they loved, you're now hated. If you took the job over from a boss they hated, you're now hated more, mm. right? So there's a history. The story you stepped into didn't start with you. And you've got to appreciate the biases and beliefs that were shaped by the story before you and speak to those honestly. You have to let people see who you are and know who you are in an appropriate way. Obviously, there have to be boundaries. You have to recognize that people will want to curry favor with you. People who used to go out for beers with, right, who are now two levels below you, are going to come up to you and say, hey, how's it going? And they're going to want the inside scoop, and they're going to want special favors, and they're going to assume that we're still buddy-buddy, and but now you have all this power, so you're going to help me out, right? And you have to set those boundaries and say, actually, no, I'm not. Yeah. Or we used to be peers. Now I'm your boss. How's this going to go? I used to go out for beers with you. Now I can't. But now the, the flip side of that is you're going to be lonely. You're going to see everybody going out for beers that you used to go with and you can't. And how do you deal with that loneliness? How do you deal with that? We are different now. And you can't give in to the notion of, hey, I'll go out with them and I'll be one of the gangs so they can see I'm still me. That's a bad idea. It's a two-way street of adjustment, right? They have to adjust to a new role of you, and you have to accept the limitations of who you are now in this role. And that's that's really hard work. Yeah, it does sound like a lot of hard work. So do we have to have like better self-perception and better understand our own weaknesses so we can manage them better? We do. We have to understand who we are. We have to assume, as a leader, we're all bad observers of our own reality, right? We don't have the luxury of being able to see how we operate and how we're experienced. So if you don't have a source of reliable feedback of somebody who's got your back, who's got eyes on you, who can tell you in meetings when you're being misunderstood, when you're coming across like a jerk, when you're too passive, when you're too assertive, when you're not listening enough, if you don't have somebody who's regularly helping you calibrate how your intentions and your impact are matching or not, you will dangerously widen that gap. And, you know, it's obviously even more likely to happen at a higher altitude when there's more opportunity to be misjudged. And so you've got to have a source of feedback. You've got to have a source of calibration for people to be able to tell you this is working, this is not. Yeah. And so I know in your book, you mentioned the importance of like detecting patterns to clear up any organizational distortions. Can you talk about this a little bit? Like why are patterns so important and how can a leader start to understand the patterns that are going on so they can clean them up? Well, so there's economic patterns or cultural patterns. There are communication patterns, but let's use culture as an example. Yeah. So you may not realize that your culture is a very collusive one, that it's a culture of secrecy and it's a culture that doesn't value openness yet, or it's too afraid of candor. But at a certain altitude, you're just part of the landscape. 
But now when you're in a leadership role and people are bringing you distorted information or they're couching what they say, or they're not giving you the full scoop and you know it, or they're coming to you and saying, hey, holla, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but Bill seems to be in a bad mood today. Can you give me some coaching on how to work with Bill? Hoping that what you'll say is, oh, yeah, Bill's a jerk, or I'll talk to him, or, oh, I know, Bill is so moody, like you used to do. Well, now suddenly you're seeing a pattern of, wow, we are not honest with each other, and people aren't being honest with me. Now suddenly the cultural pattern that you were once part of and participated in is now a problem for you as a leader. Mm. How do you become countercultural enough to get people to be more respectful and honest with you and with each other? And so now you have to decide, do I take the bait about Bill? Or do I say, you know, that's kind of inappropriate. Why don't you go talk to Bill about that? If you have a problem with Bill, what are you talking to me for? And maybe Bill has something going on at home that's, he's having a bad day. You have bad days. Why don't you give him a break? You know, now you have a choice to say something honest, to help somebody be more successful, but that's countercultural. And risk having to say, well, gee, what made you such a jerk? Or sorry i asked you know and be immature about it but that's what leaders do right yeah. leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb and the moment where someone's trying to invite you into a, an unhealthy pattern you have to disappoint them this reminded me of another part in your book that i really resonated with which was the fact that you know nothing is more dangerous than pushing decisions up in an organization yeah. i found out to be like extremely relatable and valuable so can you share why pushing decisions up is detrimental to business and what a good decision making framework looks like? So every decision comes with risk. It comes with accountability. It comes with exposure. And if you have a culture that micromanages, if you have a culture that doesn't value empowerment, that decision rights have not been distributed to the places where they most belong, because a great decision is best made closest to the place it's most implemented. The further away from a place of impact a decision is made, the more unreliable it's going to be. Mm. But we think I'm casting off risk when I push it up to the people who I perceive have more authority, more power, and therefore are more protected from risk. I think I'm off the hook. Of course, that's not true, right? I still have to live with the implications of a decision because when it comes back down, it may be a bad one. And now I have to implement a bad decision. So the place to construct a great decision is for you to understand what is the right amount of my intuition and experience? What is the right amount of data? And where should I get the data from? And what's the right amount of other people's voices and especially disagreeing voices that I need to include in this decision so that I get to an outcome we all can live with. Most people get stuck into dangerous binaries. Well, we can either do this or this. And the minute you hear the menu of choices reduced to two, mm. you can automatically assume you're going to make a bad decision because there is no problem in the world. There's no issue that you'll be solving for which there are only two options. And so if you're only going to explore two, you should assume that some of the better ones got edited out. And so what you want to do is open up the menu and ask your team, well, what else could we do? Well, who disagrees with this? Well, okay, that's what your fact base says. Who's got dueling fact bases for that? And really open up the conversation to make sure that the right data that you wouldn't normally have access to, the right intuition based on your experiences with the same issue, and the right other voices who are going to have to live with the decision when it's made, whether they agree with it or not have been included in the choice so that when you make the choice, you can move forward. And if you abdicate all that and push the decision up, you really impair commitment to that decision. You impair the ability to learn about why it might be flawed and you raise the risk that it's not gonna go well when you try and bring it to life. 
Yeah, I think that's a fantastic advice. Do you have like a real life example of when, you know, you were in a situation and they were using just binary choices and that you helped them think bigger than that and found a better solution? Yeah, well, so you see this now today because our whole world is so polarized, everything becomes politicized. So binaryism is natural, right? You know, it's we, they. It's Second Amendment or gun control, border control or immigration. We're so predisposed to trigger happy binaries that we've come conditioned to see the world that way. And because so many of our debates play out on social media, we just have sequential posting, right? My conversations are I post, then you post. And we're not listening. So I was with a client once who was deciding whether or not to uh, launch a new product that was in their pipeline. And the debate became down to launch or not launch. And so you had people advocating for their point of view. Well, the reality was there was a need in the market for the product and there were flaws in the design, right? None of that was being discussed. It was just people whose bonuses were being padded by the idea of launching it were advocating to launch it. The people who were going to have to live with the risks of cleaning up the mess when it got launched were advocating to not launch it. So nobody was stepping back and asking the question of, do our customers want this and what need are we meeting and how can we best meet that need? So I hold them out to say, let's discuss the benefits and flaws in the product. Let's discuss the need in the marketplace and what's going to happen if somebody else launches a solution instead of us. Mm -hmm. And let's discuss the real issue here, which is we're trying to compete as a business and win. Not cover our asses with launching versus not launching, right? So once we dug up the real issue being discussed was what's in it for me instead of how do we serve our clients and compete well? We couldn't change the conversation. Got it. Thank you for sharing that. So back to power. I know that there are three different types of power, positional power, relational power, and informational power. Could you unpack this for our listeners? Sure. And by the way, if one of my TED Talks is on this very topic, so if people want to learn more about what I can share here, they can go watch my TED Talk on being powerful. Awesome. I'll link that in our show notes. Part of why I say that, Hala, is because we often associate power with positions, right? With the, you know, if you have a big job, you have more power. We all have sources of power available to us. We all have relationships. We all have sources of information and data. And we all have something in our role that makes us influential by our position. But part of the reason we wanted to study power was we all have seen it abused. We all know what happens when people corrupt power, use it for self-interest, use it for immoral gain, Mm -hmm. and hurt a lot of people when they do it. So we assumed, yeah, that's what we're going to find. And that certainly was there. It was not the greatest abuse of power. The greatest abuse of power we saw in leadership was the abandonment of it. Mm. People too afraid to use the power that comes with their role and setting it aside in exchange for currying favor, buying popularity, um, buddying up doling out way too many yeses to please people because they didn't want to say no. Mm. And we label that abuse of power as, oh, he has no backbone or she's just insecure. And the reality is it's every bit as destructive as self-interest because you're confusing an organization, you're diluting its resources, you're blurring its focus, and you're institutionalizing mediocrity Mm. when you won't use the power that comes with your position. And so the beautiful part about having power is that Somewhere in your sphere of influence is something that's unjust. There's a process that's unfair. There's a practice that's unfair. And with your position comes the ability to write that injustice. You have information. You can change people's minds. You have the ability to help people see the world differently with information. You have the ability to change distorted, narrow perspectives with your information. And in the context of your relationships, you have the ability to invest in people. You have the ability to help others succeed. You have the ability to help people discover versions of themselves they hadn't thought of because of what you see in them. 
Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm gonna like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. And the best part is, I didn't have to figure out how to set up my mastermind subscriptions, how to do abandoned cart targeting, and all of that tech geeky stuff. I just left that all to Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And if you're in that, I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify Magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to the other options out there. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including huge global brands like Allbirds and Thrive Cosmetics. It took me a day to set up my Shopify store. I set up chat, took two minutes, and I was done. One month from thinking of the idea to implementation, a year later, I've made half a million dollars on the idea. That's what it takes in 2024, just a good idea and then utilizing a platform like Shopify that can help you make it a reality. There is no excuse these days. If you've got a good business idea and you think you'll be a good entrepreneur, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie and you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. So our relationships and our information and our positions allow us to change the world for the people around us in ways that not using those sources of power don't. And we all want to have impact. We all want to feel a sense of purpose. We all want to feel like we matter. And it's your sources of power that allow you to have impact, that allow you to make a difference around you. And so for goodness sake, use them. Yeah. So what's relational power? Like how is positional power, relational power, and informational power different? Did you cover all three specifically? Yeah. So if I asked you in your organization, who are the 10 people in any direction from you, bosses, peers, reports that you most rely on? to get your job done? And who are the 10 that most rely on you? Those 20 people are people you have power with, you can influence with. They are trying to be successful in their roles and you can help them be successful. You have to find out how you can be more committed to them. I have one guy in my study, one of the most influential leaders in I've ever met, but has been asking me same three questions his whole career, even when he was an contributor. He'd ask people, how can I be a better colleague to you? He'd ask, what are you working on that's really important to you? What products are you working on? What assignments are you working on that are super important to you? And then he'd ask, how can I help? What can I do to help you with that really important thing? And the amount of power in those three questions, your information power, the ideas you'll offer, your relationship power is the investment you'll make, and your positional power may be the resources you help them gain, or the connections you help them make, mm. or the priorities you help them become. You know, So just those three simple questions demonstrate tremendous commitment and power to having impact. That's awesome. So these days, I know that CEOs are younger than ever, less experienced than ever. What are the positive and negative implications of this that we should consider? Just if you're going to rise to positions of power sooner in your career than you're prepared for, just know you're not ready. And don't assume that you're entitled to the role. So many people, and this is, you know, people characterize millennials this way. I'm not sure it's all true, but millennials were a generation, they were raised being told they could change the world. And they believed us. So now we have to get out of their way and help them do it. But it doesn't mean they're ready to. So how do we help them get ready? And they have to start with the assumption of, I'm not prepared. I don't have the emotional intelligence. I don't have the resilience. I don't have the experience base. I don't have the knowledge base. So therefore, if I'm going to start into a position where there are tremendous gaps in whether or not I can succeed, what am I going to do about that? It's okay that those gaps are there. It doesn't mean you're flawed. But for goodness sake, if you try and hide those gaps and keep people from seeing them, you're for certain going to set yourself up to fail. So who can you surround yourself with? What coaching can you get? Where can you train? What experiences do you need? For goodness sake, get a therapist. You should absolutely be in therapy. Every executive should be in therapy as a sort of a, an absolute requirement. Because if you don't know your origin stories, you're definitely going to pass those pathologies on to people. You're not going to know your triggers. You're not going to know your reaction. And if you're moody in the middle, you're going to cast a dark cloud at the top. If you're quote unquote results oriented in the middle, you're going to leave a wake of bodies behind you at the top. If you have quote unquote impatience problems, you're going to have rage problems. Those pathologies only get bigger with more influence. And so if you don't know your origin stories and how they have shaped who you are and how you see the world, you're going to hurt people. So get help. It's perfectly okay that you're arriving into a role in advance of when you might be fully ready for it. But if you don't take responsibility for those gaps, you're going to hurt people and you're going to ruin your career. Yeah, I think that's 
Absolutely fantastic advice. You recently were on my friend Jordan Paris's podcast, Growth Mindset University, and you mentioned that you believe that a lot of leaders currently lack strategic clarity. What is the importance of strategic clarity and how can we become better at that? So I just recently completed a 15-year longitudinal study. So a follow-up study to our 10-year study that you mentioned before mm-hmm. on organizational honesty. And what predicts whether or not people will lie or withhold the truth in organizations? And the absence of strategic clarity, the absence of knowing who you are, makes it three times more likely that people will lie or withhold the truth in your organization. What's the first thing people want to do when they start a company? Do their mission and values. Dumb idea. But we all have companies that have billboards or posters that talk about, here's our mission, here's our purpose, here's our values. And all people do is roll their eyes. Why? Because we're not living them. And we all know we're not living them. Well, the minute you create duplicity like that, where you say one thing and do another, you've now said it's okay in general to say one thing and do another. So now you've institutionalized duplicity. So if you don't really know who you are, you're going to make it up as you go. Yeah. And so if you go around your table of your company and you say, what's our strategy? You already know you're going to get as many different answers as there are people in the room. The fact that there are that many different answers to who you are and where you're headed means the resources are being diluted. People are lying and making things up to justify their jobs and their budgets. People are afraid of the truth. And you just create this fragmentation of an organization by simply not being who you say you are. So the first thing to know is knowing who you say you are and then actually embodying who you say you are. And so that's what I mean by strategic clarity. And when you haven't got that, you are setting the stage for disaster. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ron. This was such a great interview. Where can our listeners go to find out more about you and everything that you do? Thanks so much, Hala. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, so come visit us at Hangout at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. We've got some great videos and resources. If you're leading some major change or transformation in your life or somebody else's, we have a free ebook for you called Leading Transformation, and that's at Navalent.com slash transformation. We have a quarterly magazine you can sign up for for free that has all kinds of things about self-development, leadership, and teams. We're doing a whole series on teams right now. We have a phenomenal rich blog that has all kinds of insights and content by all of our writers. So it's a phenomenal content-rich environment to come hang out with us on. So come visit. Great. Thanks so much, Ron. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Hala, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Follow Yap on Instagram at Young and Profiting and check us out at youngandprofiting.com. And now you can chat live with us every single day on Yap Society on Slack. Check out our show notes or youngandprofiting.com for the registration link. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team for another successful episode. This episode, I'd like to give a special shout out to all of our listeners. It's so cool to hear from so many of you who are enjoying the show, whether it be in iTunes reviews, SoundCloud or YouTube comments, social media posts or private LinkedIn direct messages. It makes all this work so rewarding and gives our team the motivation to keep going strong. Thank you for spreading the word about Yap and taking the time to give us feedback. We appreciate it so much. This is Hala signing off.